Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. A great um, teacher, theologian, master of everything. He's just so gifted, drives you absolutely bonkers, thinking, who is this guy? By the name of Tim, Tim Keller, he said, It's impossible to encounter the real Jesus and to be indifferent. You either bow down and worship or you go away offended. That's pretty true, isn't it? You know, if you actually encounter the real Jesus, and sometimes like, we, we get a message and we, we, we think we know Jesus, and then you read through the Gospels or, or you, you see something, you hear something, and, and you think, wait, wait a minute, Jesus, that's, that's a little bit like, that's a little bit like, oh, that's a little bit hard. Or, or other times when you just get a glimpse and you behold his beauty and his glory and you just worship him. Um, but that's really true. You can't actually be indifferent when you actually encounter the real Jesus. Um, I would love to think that my life as a Christian, that, 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 that there is something inside of me of raw passion and raw conviction because I try and, um, to, to actually have my eyes open to actually encounter the real Jesus. And you know what, this is actually true of today. If you actually were to communicate or to tell or to invite someone to actually come and meet the true Jesus... That's exactly what's going to happen. Say indifference is actually taken off the table. You're either like bow down and worship or people walk away offended. And the thing which I find amazing is that this same um, paradigm happened as Jesus is walking through the streets of Galilee over 2,000 years ago. And we're going to look at a um, story where this actually happens. Um, We're going to look at one of those stories where for some reason, Jesus being Jesus um, tends to be involved in something, then he says something, he opens his mouth, and all of a sudden, from things just being like this, they just escalate, and it's like, whoa, it's like World War Three. Actually, at those times, World War I hadn't even started, but a world war is about to encounter, and, and that's going to do it. But the premise of this story, which we're going to look at, um, is actually based on the truth, and all of the rumblings and everything happens out of a truth that every single person in, in Jewish culture knew and still knows today, and the underlying premise is this, is one undeniable truth that everyone knows is that only God can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. You know, as, as many sins as Imogen has in her life, I can't actually come up and say, I have nothing in me to do that. Only God can forgive sin. In Exodus 34, we read from verse 6, the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with un." Um, and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. This is a cool little episode in that this is the second time God's given the Ten Commandments to His people because the first time, you know what happened, didn't you? They were acting just a bunch of fools. They, like, they, they couldn't be patient or waiting for Moses, and they thought, oh, this is what we're going to do. Instead of worshiping God, we're going to start worshiping something that we create with our own hands, which is what we still do today, yeah. right? And um, Moses comes down, throws the, the commandments down, breaks it, and like, oh, they haven't got Ten Commandments. So God says, okay, I'll write another one. And what's really interesting about this is that this is God's introduction to his people. From the very first thing, God is saying, this is how I want you to know me. I'm introducing myself. You know, if someone came in for the first time, I would shake their hand and say, my name is Dave. Great to meet you. This is the introduction. And what an introduction that God says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, I, I am the God of compassion and mercy. Isn't that amazing? What an introduction. 
Imagine if you came up to me and I said, I'm Dave, I'm full of compassion and grace and mercy and all. That would be really good, wouldn't it? Maybe I should introduce myself like that. <laughs> I might be lying some days. Um, but not God. And, and, and God is saying this, I have um, unfailing love and I have uh, this, this faithfulness and, and I'm the one who lavishes love to a thousand generations. And he says, I am the one who forgives. I'm the one. God's taken it upon himself. He's saying, I am the one. And to understand how this conflict happens in the life of Jesus and also to understand and to bring clarity as to who Jesus is, we need to understand some of these fundamental things about what God says about himself. He says, I alone forgive. No one else. That's me. And it's good to know. So we're going to read the story in Mark chapter 2, second chapter of the Gospel of Mark and uh, we'll read from verse 1. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, so, um, but you'll be able to see uh, whatever it is you have. From verse 1, when Jesus returned to Capernaum um, several days later, the news um, spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door while he was preaching God's word to them. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law were sitting there, and they thought to themselves, Take note, they didn't say it out loud, they were thinking this. Thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. There we have it right there. Only God can forgive sin. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that a son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. Of course they were stunned. <laughs> they were really stunned. They were all amazed, and they praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. This is an amazing story of Jesus, isn't it? And we all know, if we've been around the Christian world for like 10 minutes, we will know this story. This is one of the, this is one of the good ones. But I think it's a remarkable story. And it's remarkable, yeah, this guy gets healed, but it's remarkable about the claims that Jesus makes about himself. And you need to understand that the Gospel of Mark is the first gospel that we have been given. And right off the bat, second chapter, Mark chapter 2, Jesus starts making some claims about himself. And if we are Christians, we need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt the claims of Christ. Because that is fundamental for us. You can't be thinking, you know what, Jesus is just my friend. Yeah, he's a little bit more than that. Um, because the way that we see Jesus will actually shape the way we live our life. And if you think Jesus is just your friend and just your buddy, guess what? Your life is actually going to be going this way when the calling of God is so much more is actually this way. It's important for us to understand that. That's a big reason why we've been delving into this in this series. This story picks up with Jesus returning home. It says his home, his home base. And... Um, you need to understand that um, there's a reason why there was safety and there was this home um, that Jesus came back to. We've been looking at um, Luke chapter 4, which is 
I've been saying is kind of this launching pad of Jesus' kind of missional understanding about who he is and his role. From Luke 4, um, I'll just reread what we've been looking at. Luke 4, um, Jesus goes um, and he opens up the scrolls found in Isaiah. And verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set uh, free, and at that time, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Sounds pretty cool and safe, doesn't it? You know, I mean, I've, I've mentioned that verse every single message. What I haven't done is actually read further and actually told the story further. And what happens is that it might have been okay if Jesus just stopped there. Jesus has a habit of actually just not stopping where you probably think he should stop. But he keeps on talking. And um, he um, keeps on going from, he closes it, everyone's looked, everyone's stunned, and he starts talking. And then he starts saying some things which kind of gets people a little bit irritated and evokes some kind of reaction from them. And it actually culminates in this sort of reaction. I'll let you read what he says, but we can kind of see the tone and the impact and the effect it's had from verse 28 of Luke 4. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Wow, imagine that. If I came here and started talking and you guys just started getting absolutely furious with me. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill which was built, um, on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Verse 31, Then Jesus went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and taught there in a the synagogue every Sabbath day. What happens is that Jesus... He starts his, his ministry, he goes there, he opens up the scroll, he reads this out, everyone's like, that's all good. He keeps on talking, they want to kill him. He escapes, they're wanting to kill him, and he finds a safe place here, and this is now his home base. That's how we get to this story here. So he's in this home place of Capernaum. And from here he goes out, and he comes back, he goes out, and he comes back, he goes out, and he comes back. And in this particular instant, he has come back. And in Mark chapter 2, there is news that Jesus is back. And because they have heard of everything that Jesus has done, there is a huge, huge crowd. It's not just a couple of visitors coming and sitting in the house, sitting in the lounge room and, and all that. It is literally a crowd of people to the point where the streets are getting filled of people because they have heard that Jesus has returned. That's how we find this place here. That's how we got the crowd here. It's important for us to know that the news of Jesus has been spreading out. So he returns, and we read from verse 3, in this particular instance, as Jesus returning and he's teaching and, and all that, there are these four men from verse 3 who arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Before I get into some of this stuff, I just thought it's quite amazing, right? So if you've got a paralyzed guy, Right, and he got four friends, and he can't walk because he's paralyzed. So they're carrying him on this kind of makeshift kind of bed, right? And um, the whole point of taking this paralyzed guy to Jesus would be to, for he to, for him to get healed, right? That's what you think, right? And the reason why you take him to Jesus to get healed because he's been healing people, right? Crazy, right? So I would have honestly thought if, like, if you're one of the crowd, right? And you can see this guy, and he can't walk to the point where he has four friends wanting just carrying him 
Wouldn't you think that the crowd would make some way for them to get to Jesus? Crowds are stupid. Isn't that crazy? Isn't it amazing? I'm just thinking, isn't that, isn't that nuts? Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, if someone came here and, 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 and they couldn't walk and, and we know, well, Jesus could heal you, wouldn't it be absurd if we all just stand in their way on purpose and like, you're just looking around your corner like, what does he want? It's obvious what he wants. I was just thinking, that's just nuts. Um, the book of Mark talks about crowds and a lot of times the crowds get in the way. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the followers of Jesus. And the followers of Jesus were disciples, but also crowds. It's funny that even today, there are followers of Jesus, disciples, and crowds. That's the point. And crowds get in the way. Because when someone needs to meet Jesus, instead of making way for them to get to Jesus, they get in the way. There's another story which I haven't preached about. It's blind Bartimaeus. Do you remember that story? Blind Bartimaeus, sitting on the road. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus hears Son of David. That's the very first time Son of David is, is spoken in public. Son of David talks about Messiah. He turns around and says, who's calling me? There's a crowd around him again. It's this picture of the crowd all around Jesus and this blind beggar on the side. And the blind beggar desperately needs to get healed. But he can't get to Jesus. He's calling out to Jesus. And then the, the, the climax of that, Jesus says, call him to me. And then the crowd starts saying, cheer up, be on your way, he's calling you. The crowd always gets in the way. We need to make sure as a church that we are more inclined to be disciples than to be crowds. Because if we're going to be a crowd, we'll get in the way. All right, didn't mean to preach that. There we go. So we will be disciples and no crowd. But I just think it's amazing, you know, all these people, the crowds, the crowds, the crowds. These guys, they can't get in because it's obvious that this bloke needs to be healed, but they can't get anywhere near to Jesus because there's a crowd. So they go onto the roof and they start digging through the roof. The houses back in those days, they had a flat roof, beams of wood, and then you would just get like branches and all that and you'd, you'd, you'd do that up and then you would get mud and you'd pour it on mud. So, so the roofs are really thick. They're really strong to the point where you could actually go and like sort of like have your sundowner up the top over there. Fantastic. Um, I think some places they kept their goats up there. and so, so it was pretty strong, pretty sturdy. So when they said they had to dig through the roof, they literally had to dig through the roof because it was full of all sorts of stuff. So they had to do that. And you can imagine like... Jesus over there, he's teaching, and it's all of a sudden you can hear things. There's dust coming, there's mud coming, and, and, and you know, if you've got your, go your goats up there, there's other stuff coming down as well. So all sorts of stuff, you know. <laughs> can you imagine if it was your house? Like, who's going who's gonna to fix my roof? But this happens. And I want to point out three things that happens. Point number one, Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. And that's important because right after this, when Jesus starts speaking to this paralyzed guy, he actually says something different. He doesn't say there, he says something else. Verse 5 says, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. And there's a difference. Jesus saw their faith and he said, Your sin is forgiven. So this faith which these friends had, it wasn't supernatural faith. Because the reason they brought him to Jesus is because news was out. Jesus was healing people left, right, and center. 
He was actually doing that stuff. In fact, leading up to this story, we actually read even in Mark, that, um, that, that uh, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is with um, Simon and Andrew in his house, and he is in their ha- Simon's house, and his mother-in-law is sick. All right? So husbands, here's one for you. The mother-in-law is sick, so what does Jesus do? He goes and heals the mother-in-law. Everyone's quiet now, aren't you? <laughs> the in-laws are a great thing. <laughs> But Jesus goes and does that, right? So, so and after he heals um, Simon's mother-in-law, then it says that he goes out and he casts out uh, many demons and the whole town came out. And then after that, he moves out to towns, to towns, to towns, preaching and casting out demons and healing stuff. And at the end of Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals a man with leprosy and tells him not to tell anyone that he healed him, right? And then we read in Mark chapter 1 verse 45 before we go into Mark chapter 2, but the man who was told not to tell anyone about Jesus just healing him, but the man, he went on to spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened, and as a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. So this thing that these four boys, these four guys, these four friends, the faith that they have, they've heard about Jesus. And there's great implication with that, because they heard about Jesus, and then they did something about it, Yet we live in a day where we know so much about Jesus and surely we would have heard along the grapevine. Surely we would have heard just in grassroots. Surely we should hear that Jesus is still doing something. And the question is, if we have heard that Jesus is doing something, if Jesus is up to something, if God is on the move, my goodness, we should be doing something. And it doesn't even require an angel to appear. It doesn't require the Holy Spirit to, to quicken. It doesn't. Because these boys, this faith... We're not talking about supernatural faith. We'll get to that in a minute. It's talking about they've heard. Could you imagine if the church was just moved to action just because we simply heard God's doing stuff. God's doing stuff. God's healing. God's mending. God's bringing people together. God's transforming hearts. My goodness. How amazing. How amazing would that be? So that's what happens. So they heard. Point number two is this. Jesus bypasses the perceived issue. The perceived issue. Because everyone around is looking at this guy. This guy's got issues, right? He's like being carried on this little makeshift bed, this pallet. The only reason he can get to Jesus is because other people are taking him to Jesus. This boy's got some issues. And living in that culture, there was something in the forefront of his mind. He would have been embarrassed to be seen in public. Really embarrassed. I mean, if you're paralyzed, you don't want to go out in public. Because the common consensus of the day back then is that if you were in such a predicament, this is evidence of God's judgment on your life and your life is full of sin. That's what they were perceiving. The reason why you're paralyzed is because, mate, you, you sinner. This is why your life is like that. And, and if, I mean, you don't want to... Could you imagine the judgment? The, 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 the looks, the sneers, like, who is this guy? Look at you. I wonder what he's done. You know? I mean, shit. I may have done some things, but I've at least got two legs at work. It was embarrassing for him to go out in public. You know, he, he wasn't... 2,000 years ago in... In ancient Israel, it's different to 2018 right now. Didn't have the compassion. 
that we say we have of ourselves right now. Sometimes I do question the compassion we do have, to be honest. But he can't work either, can he? Can't work. He can't move. Completely reliant. This boy's got some issues. Could you imagine what's happening in his head, in this predicament, that he's stuck, that he's trapped in his body? This boy's got some issues. It's not just issues to do with the social life of Israel. It's not just issues to do with his vocation, ability to provide and to work. He's messed up in his head as well. Because I'm a bloke, I'm a male. Any male would be. It messes with us. He got a lot of issues. A lot of issues. And the reason why he was brought to Jesus is because of these perceived issues. He's wrapped in issues. Wrapped in issues. Funny how Jesus seems to bypass the perceived issues. I think sometimes we get disappointed today is that we come to Jesus because we think we've got these issues. And they may be issues, we may be wrapped in issues, but Jesus bypasses what we're wrapped in and we get discouraged not knowing that he wants to actually free us and deliver us and actually go to the root core. Because we're so fixated and we're so consumed with ourselves that we, we, we have the faith to come to Jesus, but we don't have the faith to believe that Jesus is actually going to deal with the core issue. But this is what happens. Verse 5, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, which is such, that is such a, that is such a term of endearment. This same story is found in Luke chapter 5. And in both instances, it is such a term, it's such a, it's the language of love, of endearment. Okay. My son, your sins are forgiven. Crazy didn't come to get his sins forgiven well his friends didn't bring him to get his sins forgiven understand Jesus he saw their faith right but he said your sins what's astounding about this there's a crowd of people and and they've come because this guy is paralyzed he's wrapped in issues and they want him to be delivered from all of those issues. And there's something that happens in this moment where Jesus actually sees a faith that's different. He sees beyond what everyone else sees. sees and, he, and, he, and he deals with something that no one else deals. And, and out of this crowd, including the four, it's only him whose sins are forgiven. You know what that means? Salvation came to only one person. Just one. Out of the crowd. Just one. Because God alone can forgive sins. Not everyone. And it makes kind of sense. If he's lived in a world, you need to actually put yourself in the culture. And and if he lives in a world that's told him the reason why you're in this situation is because of your sin, it makes sense that Jesus, he sees a certain kind of faith in the friends of this guy, but he sees something else. And in the eyes of this paralyzed man, Jesus actually sees that this man has not come for his healing because he understands he's been told there is something deeper at work in my heart. There is a deeper need. I've been told all my life, I've been in this situation, I've been in this circumstance, I've been told the reason I'm in this place is because of my sin. Jesus, I need something deeper. We can't get it when we read it like the way we do, but if you put yourself into that culture, it makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense. 
It makes sense. So Jesus sees this different kind of faith in the eyes of this paralyzed man. And, and it's not a, a faith for healing. It's actually a faith for salvation. It's a faith for salvation. It goes deeper. This man wanted more. He wanted forgiveness. He's been in a culture that's told him the reason why you're in this situation, the reason why you're in this predicament, the reason why you can't walk, the reason why you're isolated, the reason why you're lonely, the reason why you're the scum of the earth, the reason why people mock you and sneer at you, the reason why people just belittle you, the reason why is because you've got sin in your life. And he understood that more than everyone else over there. And because he understood his own predicament, he understood that he had sin in his life. Wow, he had faith. And that's what Jesus goes for. It's incredible. A deep poverty of soul. And then we see Jesus stepping into something that starts the whole conflict. And point three is this. That Jesus, on the basis of his own sovereignty, absolves this man of all sin. On the basis of who he is, absolves all sin in this man. And this is where the rumbling begins. Mark 2, verse 6. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves. The teachers of the religious law, you would have, say, say in my instance, I'm a pastor, I'm a, I'm a preacher, I'm a teacher. Um, as far as communication is concerned, my primary gifting is teaching. Um, that, that's just who God's wired me up to be. But above me... There is actually just this huge forum of theologians and, 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 and just people who I rely on um, because they, they are just graced by God to know the scriptures and know the languages and, and all that. And, and so in my study and all that, I, I do my own study. I do my own exegesis and all that kind of stuff. But I will go and I will actually glean and I will learn from, from men who have far more wisdom and, and, and women who have far more wisdom. They're theologians, okay? These are the theologians. So you may have those who go around preaching and all that, but these are the ones who sit above. So these are the heavy hitters. Okay? So that's who... And they haven't come to learn from Jesus. Understand, the reason why they're in the crowd, because they're wanting to catch him out. All right? But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, and get this, they thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. This is what they thought. This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Guess what? They were 100% correct. Only God can forgive sins. If I was sitting there with Jesus, I would possibly 80% be a Pharisee. Because I love the Word of God. I know this is not just Word. This is the Word of God. Right? And if someone comes around saying, like, I'm God. Like, if someone came around, and we do have some people who need help, who, who go around and they say, like, I'm God. What do we think to them? It's like, dude, you need some help. Because you ain't God. <laughs> and you're just like, you're not. But this is what happens, and they do that. And right here is the point for every single human person who encounters the real Jesus, and every single person needs to be invited to meet the real Jesus. Because when you meet the real Jesus, you're going to have to ask yourself the question, is this man 
is this person, he's either a blasphemer or he is God. There is no in-between. You cannot say, oh, Jesus is just a great moral teacher. Uh, You can't say, oh, he's just full of compassion. Uh, No, Jesus does not leave the option. If you're going to meet the real Jesus, that is. Now, if you want to meet someone else who's a caricature and someone's built up, but if you're going to meet the real Jesus, if you're going to actually journey through the Gospels, if you're going to encounter the real Jesus, you're actually left with this. Either he is a liar or he is God. Because only God can forgive sins. So I'm sorry. I mean, if you're a Mormon, I'm sorry. You're wrong. If you're Jehovah's Witness, you're wrong. If you're of the Islamic faith, you are wrong. Dead wrong. Dead wrong. You cannot come and tell me and pervert my Jesus because I've met the real Jesus. And let me tell you something. He's God. And the reason we live our life in such a way is not because we've met this caricature of Jesus. It's because we believe the claims of Christ. It's important for us to know as Christians that we believe the claims of Christ. Christ. Straight off the bat, Mark chapter 2, Jesus looking at this boy and says, your sins are forgiven. He's making a huge claim right there. And we need to know what that is. What did Tim Keller say again? It's impossible to encounter the real Jesus and be indifferent. Absolutely. You either bow down and wonder or go away offended. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no middle ground. He's either the one who can forgive sin or he's not. And according to the Levitical law, if he's a blasphemer right there, you need to kill him. That's the law. That's the law. Do you remember last week we went through Isaiah 52:13 to Isaiah 53? And we talked about this prophecy is about Isaiah in a future day, it's past 2018, looking back and how Israel will actually say, we didn't see it back then, but now we see. And they say, we thought he was punished of God. Because the Jewish people still think this Jesus, the way he was crucified and all that, they think he was under God's, like he was being punished. But the day will come and say, no, he was actually stricken for us. He was punished for us. So we still have people who still think the reason why Jesus died the way he did is just because he was blaspheming. That's the reason. But he wasn't. Verse Eight of this story, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. And this would have really taken them off guard because they are, they are the theologians, they are the heavyweights, and they would know. They didn't say anything, but Jesus knew, and they would know that Messiah, they would know that God knows the thoughts of man's heart. I misspoke. They would know that God, that God knew. God searches the heart of men. So that would have taken them aback. But knowing what they were thinking, so they asked him, why do you question your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? And when he says, is it easier to say, what he's saying right there is, is it easier for me to say something and sort of have the evidence to back it up? So what's it easy for me to say? Your sins are forgiven? I mean, I can't do anything right now to actually back that up, but let me say this. Is it easier for me to say stand up and walk? Because if I say stand up and walk and the bloke actually stands up and walk, there's actually evidence to back that up, which is easy for me to say. 
So now he's looking at the issues that are wrapped around him, aren't they? But he's actually still talking about the primary issue. He's still talking about salvation. He's still talking about forgiveness. He's still talking about sin. But in order to actually tackle that in front of people, he's talking about this stuff that's wrapped up. What's easier for me to say? And at that moment, you just, there, there were crowds of people, understand. The reason why I actually walked you through the story so you can actually see that in this town, possibly the whole town is over there right now because the reputation and, and what Jesus has been doing is spread through everywhere. Could you imagine the tension? You've got the heavyweights, you know? You've got the, you've got the Don Carsons and the Douglas Moos and, and a real theological juggernaut sitting over there. And then you have crowds of people. And Jesus has said something which is just so stunning. And it's a thing that they've been waiting to hear him so they can like, knock him off. They tried to push him off a cliff and he escaped. They can't kill this guy. The tension, the crowd. You've got to keep that in mind. Jesus is pretty cool, isn't he? <laughs> what a story. They are seriously, they're spilling onto the street. Verse 10, so I will prove to you that a son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. Could you imagine those theological juggernauts? What are, the, what are you going to say? Absolutely stunned. They were all amazed and they praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. The evidence that he has gotten is validated. He's validated right there. Why was Jesus killed? Because he said he's God. He said he's God. Don't let anyone trick you. You got Jehovah's Witness come knock on your door? They will present you with a Bible that is not, they have manipulated and they have perverted that Bible. You need to understand that the Bible they read and they show you is not this. You go pick up this and you say, oh, well, what do you reckon Jesus was saying in Mark chapter 2? Why do you reckon, why, 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 why do you think that he got killed on the cross? Why, why, why do you think this? Don't get tricked. We live in a world that will try to confuse people about who Jesus is. Yeah. Don't get tricked. It's amazing. So, and, you know, like in this series, it's kind of been an interesting series, this series, Higher Love. It's kind of been like, if you've been on the journey with us, we started out, out, out in the last couple of weeks, I've been actually like just really trying to focus us in more and more and more. And um, we're being informed about the life of Jesus Christ because we're f called to be followers of the Jesus of Jesus, and and Jesus has sent his church, his disciples, into the world the same way that the Father has sent him into the world. And we will go into the world, and we will encounter people. As soon as we step out of those doors, we will encounter people. Actually, people here today, including myself, who are wrapped up with issues. We've all got issues, you know. This man came wrapped with issues, big issues. The issues of his life 
affected his social life, felt it affected his mental world, relational world. But Jesus actually does deal with those issues that are wrapped up. But his primary concern is the issue that goes beyond that perceived issue. And it's the issue of every single human heart. It is a need of forgiveness. It's a need to be reconciled with God. His introduction to his people says, I am God full of compassion. I have unfailing love. What an introduction. Let you know off the bat, he's a God of love. I'm the one who forgives. I'm the one who does this. I am, the, I, I, I am your God. I am your God. And that is the primary need. And we will do everything else. So we will serve our community. We will mend the brokenhearted. We will feed the poor. We will come and counsel and we will do everything else, but we will not neglect the primary thing and the deepest need, which is a deep poverty of soul, which is in the human heart. He actually says in Luke chapter 4, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor. Do you think he was talking about those who just didn't have any money? He's talking about your, pov- he's talking about your heart. In the Beatitudes, blessed are the... Those with poverty of soul. You know? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor of spirit. When um, Andrew and I, we did a missions trip to Rwanda in 2007. And um, it was beautiful. And um, um, it was was just phenomenal. And um, what really got my attention, though, because you go to Rwanda and it's, it's like, obviously, there's so much history and, and still a lot of undercurrent um, that, that's still still prevalent. Actually, undercurrent is, is everywhere. Even in Australia, there's an undercurrent of racism and stuff. It's just there. Um, and like, so I'm over there. But what I notice is that on every street corner, there's a church. And um, everywhere that we went, um, I got a shock because when, when, when I went there and preached, they actually said to me, you're not going to give us like a 30, 40-minute message. We want you to go for at least an hour. Um, they actually said that because um, I just want to hear like the word. But 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 I was over there, and obviously, like they don't have the material stuff. But it seemed that there was more of a richness of spirit and soul than when I came back to Australia. And as I looked out into Australia, I saw okay, we do have some bells and we do have some whistles, but there is a deep poverty of soul in Australia. There is a deep poverty of soul. And that's actually our job, to actually be sent out as Jesus has been sent by the Father. And he said, this is my vocation. This is my job. I'm going to deal with the issue of the heart, the poverty of soul, the need for forgiveness of all men. And that's what we take forward. That's what we carry forward. But make no mistake, people will always come and we all have issues that wrap us. And we need to, as Jesus did and as the church has always done, we need to be a church that actually helps unwrapping and dealing with the issues, but never neglect that our primary purpose is to actually introduce them to Jesus, who actually looks beyond the issues and sees one issue. And he looks at that. That's our job. And I think Tim Keller is absolutely right. In my experience of what I've seen, that the people who encounter the real Jesus, they will either bow and worship 
or they'll walk away offended. But as the church, that's their choice. That's nothing to do with us. Our job is just to introduce them to the real Jesus. Their response is their response.